Hello and welcome to What The Bump. My name is Jennifer. I am a labor and delivery nurse who oddly enough has no kids, yet a huge passion for informing and empowering women on all of their options surrounding their pregnancy. Join me every week as we dive in to all things prenatal, postnatal, birth, and so much more. So let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Darla. We're kind of piggybacking off of my last solo episode where I talked about breaking water or artificial rupture of membranes. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about meconium. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. Yeah. So first off, just tell us like who you are. Basically, I know who you are, but (laughs) tell everybody else who you are. (laughs) So my name is Darla. I'm a registered nurse. Um, I've worked in various different NICUs and a couple of different labor and delivery postpartum units um, over the past several years. Uh, Currently, I'm a neonatal intensive care nurse uh, working on my master's degree. And what are you getting your master's degree in? My master's degree is focused on uh, neonatal nurse practitioner. That's awesome. So what sparked your passion in neonatal nursing? Um, My passion for neonatal nursing is just the resilience of the patient population. Babies are so strong and they just, I feel like they just never quit trying. Right. I totally agree. They are. People think like that. They're just like little tiny, like they have to be so careful. New, new dads are so funny. They act like they're holding like a China glass on. I'm like, you'll be surprised. Babies are so resilient. Yes. Yeah. And I, new dads, I think are the best. Like they're just, to me, like it's, it's almost like comical how a tiny baby can just like own their dad, it is. <laughs> like any little squeak. And the dad is like, what is it? What is it? Right. <laughs> All right. So let's just jump into this podcast. We're going to be talking about meconium. You guys are probably wondering what the heck is meconium. So tell us what is meconium? Uh, so meconium is the material that accumulates in the developing colon. It's essentially the baby's first bowel movement. Um, typically, with newborns, they pass their first meconium or have their first poop within the first 24 to 48 hours of life. Um, and sometimes babies will pass meconium while they're still in the womb. And that's kind of how this relates to the last solo podcast I did about artificial rupture of membranes, because sometimes when you break your water, you might see that meconium. So how do we know if a baby's had its first bowel movement while it's still in the womb? Yeah. So when mom's water breaks, uh, we can see the amniotic fluid. Most of the time, the amniotic fluid is clear and that's how we know that there's not meconium present. So when the baby has had their first bowel movement in the womb, the fluid changes colors. It's no longer clear. It can be anywhere from green to a brownish color. And it can also have like thick particles in it. About 10 to 15% of births globally have meconium. And then, you know, kind of 5% of those experience complications related to that first bowel movement in the womb. That's interesting to know it's 10 to 15%. I feel like sometimes I don't see, like, I don't have a patient with meconium for weeks. And then sometimes I get like four of them all in one week with meconium. Yes. I definitely feel like it kind of, it kind of runs together a little bit. And then exactly you'll, I, yes, exactly. I feel like I don't see it for a while. And then my next three patients would have meconium stain fluid. Yeah. And you know, we say, I feel like I say that's everything when it comes to the OB world is like, it comes in waves because it seriously does twins yes. come in waves, postpartum hemorrhages. They come in waves. Mech comes in waves. Yes, absolutely. That's how I feel too. So meconium, we know that it's there because when your water breaks, you'll see that different colored fluid, but what actually causes the baby? Like why, why do some babies poop have that first bowel movement or poop in the womb? And why do some not? Yeah. So 
we don't know the answers to everything. I think that people come to the hospital thinking that, well, I'm coming to a hospital. They know the, the, the team here knows the answer to everything. We cannot pinpoint one specific reason for meconium stained fluid. We do know that there are certain risk factors that kind of set a baby up to have meconium. One of the risk factors being, uh, oligohydramnios, which is not enough fluid or a small amount of fluid. And we know that fetal stress is one of the risk factors, post-gestational age being a risk factor. And post-gestational age is anything greater than 40 weeks and zero days. 40 weeks and zero days is not, it's not necessarily saying that you will have meconium stained fluid. It's just saying this is a risk factor. And then most OB practices recommend that moms be induced before or at 42 weeks, because we know the greatest risk is at 42 weeks and zero days. That would be the most significant risk factor would be the post-gestational age and especially approaching that 42 weeks and zero days. So when you say like that meconium can be caused by neonatal, like stress inside of the womb, what are some things that like you can think of off the top of your head that would be causing distress in the womb? Sure. So neonatal distress would be that oligohydramnios, the low fluid can stress the baby out that post-gestational age that placenta is at its time limit the placenta will kind of start to calcify. And those calcifications just kind of mean that the placenta is getting old. And so it's not oxygenating and giving the baby the nutrition that he or she needs. So that'll stress the baby out. Maternal drug use can stress a baby out. And maternal drug use is, it can go either way. It can cause fetal stress and rapid lung development, or it can cause fetal stress, and then the baby passes its first stool within the womb. The other risk factor would be infants of gestational diabetic moms, that placenta reaches its time limit much faster than non-gestational diabetic mom. So that, that placenta starts to calcify much faster in our infant of diabetic moms. So those, it's, mainly related to stress. And the stress is brought on by kind of an insufficient placenta, low fluid, or say like maternal drug use. Yeah, that's all great. And one thing to add, another thing that can cause the meconium, like sometimes your water might break and it might be clear and you're like, oh great, I don't have like meconium. But throughout labor, if baby becomes stressed during labor, like like kind of like what you touched on is a lot of those things, the decreased oxygen supply if baby feels like if baby's getting its oxygen supply cut off during labor with your contractions, we kind of see it as baby might have a couple of D cells, all of a sudden your fluid, just cause it was clear when your water first broke, baby can still have that past that meconium in there in the womb from being stressed out from labor and from contractions as well. Yes, absolutely. And I've definitely seen, uh, you know, having been a labor nurse, patients do come in with clear fluid. And then at some point during labor, we notice that there is meconium. Right. So what is the biggest concern? Like why, why does it matter that the baby had a bowel movement in the womb? The concern is centered around meconium aspiration syndrome and the concerns are strictly with the baby. Meconium stained fluid, it does not affect the mom. 
the baby could have meconium in their lungs when they're born, whether they were trying to breathe in the womb and the meconium entered the lungs prior to birth, or the baby could breathe the meconium on the way out of the birth canal. Meconium aspiration syndrome, as mentioned previously, it occurs in approximately 5% of babies born with meconium stained fluid. Remember, we talked about 10 to 15% of births have meconium stained fluid. Of that number, 5% of the babies born have meconium aspiration syndrome. And this meconium aspiration syndrome is a term that's broadly used to describe any respiratory distress that's caused by meconium aspiration. Anything from mild breathing difficulties to respiratory distress syndrome resulting in advanced life support measures. It's, it can be very serious. We, like we take it very seriously. So just because you, you know, your water breaks and you have the meconium stained fluid or your water breaks and it's clear and later on it becomes meconium stained, that does not mean that your baby's going to have meconium aspiration syndrome, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. And like you said, there's no risk for the mom. It's just strictly worrying about the baby. Yes. So if you have meconium in your water and, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to control whether baby, you know, breathes that in, in the womb necessarily, but how would you, how can you prevent, if you have meconium fluid, how can you prevent further complications from the baby? How do we stay out of that 5% that have the meconium stained fluid that um, get meconium aspiration syndrome? A mom's care team. I, this is just not an easy question to answer because we really don't know if baby has aspirated that meconium in utero or in the womb. Um, we do know the risk factors. Most hospitals nationwide throughout the United States will call the neonatal care team to be present at the birth. And if baby's depressed or not breathing within 30 seconds to a minute of life, then the neonatal care team will intervene with respiratory interventions. You know, sometimes we do see babies without risk factors. The basis is prevention, and it's, it's all management of the baby when the baby comes out. The baby really guides the care. So if baby comes out and is put on mom's abdomen and is vigorous and crying and, you know, doing all of those things, we leave the baby with mom. And we kind of assume that baby's okay. And even some of those babies later on, two to three hours later, will start kind of breathing fast. But we know that they had meconium in their fluid. So we're a little bit more vigilant about watching those babies. And then when they do start breathing fast or they have an increased work of breathing, we're pretty quick about calling the neonatal team to come and look at those babies. How is meconium aspiration prevented? Um, that's not an easy question to answer. Although we know and discuss the risk factors, we also know that every baby who falls into the high risk category is not going to have meconium stained fluid. The basis of prevention of meconium aspiration syndrome is actually management of the baby based on the entire clinical picture. We discussed the potential benefits of an amnio infusion, which is an infusion of fluid into the uterus, which may thin or flush meconium, preventing the baby from breathing it in. However, there's not really substantial research supporting this evidence for practice and also not, an, not enough evidence to suggest that it's not beneficial. So there might be some OBs that say, yes, let's go ahead and try an amnio infusion to try and flush some of this meconium out. Other studies suggest that when meconium is 
kind of thick enough to recommend an amnio infusion, there's actually the possibility that the baby may have already tried to breathe in the meconium in, in the womb. So babies do practice breathe in the womb uh, and they breathe in and out that amniotic fluid. And honestly, if the meconium stained fluid is thick enough to warrant or to think about doing an amnio infusion, there's the possibility that the baby may have already breathed it in. The whole idea behind meconium aspiration syndrome, we don't really have any actual preventative measures that are in place or in practice. All of the measures that we do to prevent meconium aspiration are really centered around once the baby comes out, how does the baby present and what does the baby look like? Are they breathing? Are they not breathing when they come out? So that is how we manage meconium aspiration syndrome. It's, it's basically just baby management. So would you say like the, the thicker the meconium, the more worried you get because there's more chance that baby breathed it in and more chances for complications with it? I would say the thicker the meconium, the more concerned I would be. Yes. Okay. And that's where you said sometimes some providers might do an annual infusion, which is the infusion of fluid into the uterus to kind of flush that out. And what's the idea like with the thicker meconium, what makes it almost more likely that the baby breathes it in? If it's thicker meconium, there's more of it. So it's not just that the baby had one bowel movement, it's that the baby has had maybe multiple bowel movements. And so that makes the meconium, the meconium thicker in, in utero, in the womb. So that would be more concerning. Right. And is there any time, like, is there any circumstances where this would, this would end up in requiring somebody to have a cesarean section? I think that is where the labor care team looks at the entire clinical picture. It's not a hard thing. Like it's a, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because it is, it's a whole picture. How, you know, how is mom presenting? How does the baby look on the fetal monitoring strip? You know, is baby, is baby not looking good during labor? You know, and that is, that's kind of at the discretion of the mom and the care team. If baby's just not looking good, then that might be a discussion that they have. It's not because there's meconium. Meconium is not a reason for a cesarean. Right. So it's more so looking at the whole picture. And I I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I definitely feel like my, my moms who have meconium stained fluid, a lot of times their strip does, does not look as pretty as one, you know, who had clear fluid. A lot of times, sometimes the baby is a little bit more prone to have D cells and their variability is definitely a little bit more minimal when they have meconium. And also I feel like depending on the thickness of it, that also does play a role in just how baby presents through the fetal monitoring strip, which is a very important way that we can indicate whether baby is stressed happy or, you know, how their oxygen reserves are. Yes. I definitely think that what you're saying is definitely supportive of what the evidence says in that meconium stained fluid definitely suggests fetal stress. Right. And as we're talking about this, not to scare people, just because I do have a lot of patients who will, you know, their water will break and will, it'll have like a, that green, greenish brownish tinge. And we'll just say, okay, it's meconium. And sometimes it freaks people out. And as we're talking about this, like 
we, of course we're highlighting more on like the, the what ifs of it, the more like, we're just trying to educate you on what could happen. But even as we're talking about this, just remember, you know, even 95% of the babies that have the meconium stained fluid do absolutely fine. So just not to scare anybody too much. 95% of these babies do absolutely fine. Yes. Yeah. 5% is a small number. We prepare for that 5%, but I think it's important to remember 95% of these babies do quite well. So what is different at delivery when you have meconium stained fluid? Because like you said, a lot of the prevention is not necessarily in the womb because we can't really prevent too much of the meconium in the, in the womb. It's more so the interventions after delivery. So what, what happens differently at delivery of a baby who might have meconium stained fluid versus a baby who does not? There's going to be a few more people in the delivery. Unfortunately, I know a lot of moms want that kind of quiet, private delivery. The neonatal care team is preparing for that small number, that 5%. So across the United States, it can be anticipated that the neonatal care team will be present for the delivery of any baby with meconium stain fluid. The management of the baby will solely depend on the baby. You may have a nurse practitioner come to the delivery and the baby's completely fine and they just kind of come in and out and you never really see them or notice that they're there. Um, if the baby comes out crying and vigorous, the delivery care team manages routinely again. And that, that nurse practitioner and that care team from the NICU will come in and you may never see them. If the baby is showing signs of distress, then you'll definitely see the NICU care team and they take over and they manage the baby as the baby presents. You know, the baby could potentially go over to the warmer and then go right back to mom. We, we just don't know. Again, 95% of these babies come out and they look great. Five, we prepare for that 5%. So there'll be more people in the delivery. So are there any, let's say like you have a baby who has meconium fluid, but the baby comes out, it's vigorous, it's breathing on its own. Are there any like long-term effects from the meconium in the womb? Like, you know, even not even just like the day, the day of, because obviously we know they can have a little bit more respiratory distress that day of delivery. And even just the few days following as they transition, but long-term, let's say like weeks and months later, are there any long-term effects with a vigorous baby at delivery from the meconium in the fluid? No. Short and simple. No. <laughs> Short and simple. No. You know, baby comes out, it has great APGAR scores, goes to mom. Everything is routine. Simply no. When a baby goes to the NICU for the meconium and let's say they may be, I know this is very dependent on the degree of, you know, how, if they aspirated it or if they're just having respiratory distress, but on average for babies who have the meconium aspiration syndrome, would you happen to know like on average, how long NICU stay is, or is that just insanely dependent on, you know, the degree of aspiration? That is completely dependent on the degree of aspiration and how the baby manages, you know, you could have two babies that initially present exactly the same and one might stay longer than the other. We really don't know. And anytime a baby is admitted to the NICU, we don't ever give the parents a solid answer to when will the baby be discharged because we just don't know. All of that is completely dependent on the baby and how the baby manages the meconium aspiration syndrome. The interventions are also completely based on the baby. What I will say is that most neonatal intensive care teams are very, very adamant that moms and babies not be separated. So if baby is separated from their parents, it is, it is because the baby absolutely had to go to the neonatal intensive care. 
Right. Like we try to give that baby every opportunity, even if in the beginning they're having some signs of respiratory distress, sometimes we will put baby back skin to skin on mom and see if that baby transitions. We might give them an hour, an hour and a half before, you know, we call the nurse practitioner back to come reevaluate. I will say, you know, some babies do just come out with respiratory distress and there isn't meconium. Our and, and we'll put baby skin to skin to trans, what we call transition. Our babies with meconium, nine times out of 10, I see that nurse practitioner, if we put the baby back skin to skin with the mom and we let them bond and we try to see if baby will transition, nine times out of 10, that nurse practitioner will come back and reevaluate themselves. Like they want to have eyes on a baby who's had meconium aspiration. And especially if they have like mild respiratory distress. You know, the, the big thing is we know that keeping babies with their parents is the best thing in a perfect world. And we, we try to make that happen as much as possible. Yeah, I definitely think skin to skin is huge when it comes to any baby who is having a little, I mean, e- even if baby's not having respiratory distress, I always try to get my moms and babies skin to skin after delivery, but especially yeah. in the case of respiratory distress, I think a part of it, and I don't know much about this because you know, I don't specialize in babies necessarily. I specialize in labor and delivery, but a lot of it, I'm sure even has to do with the position of baby more. So when it's skin to skin, how they're kind of like belly down and also just skin to skin. It just, it just helps babies transition. It helps them to breathe better and it helps them to clear out their lungs. So I definitely think that if it's not severe to where the baby needs to go to the NICU or needs, you know, immediate intervention and help, if it gets to the point where we're like, okay, let's put baby skin to skin and see how they transition. It can be, nine times out of 10 amazing transition. And like you said, the nurse practitioner almost always comes back and wants to lay eyes on that baby. That might've been a little questionable at delivery. Um, and we can also put a pulse ox on the baby while it's skin to skin and transitioning. If they're having a little bit of respiratory issues, that way we can keep a closer eye on their oxygen saturation. Yes, exactly. I think a lot of it just has to do with babies are familiar with the smell of their moms. And I think about us as adult humans, when we are around things that are familiar, we heal better. And I think for babies, their moms and dads' voices are familiar. Being able to be on mom is familiar. So I think that helps kind of relax baby. And I think being kind of relaxed is what helps them heal. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Darla. I'm excited that I got to have you on the podcast. We'll definitely have to have you back to honestly share more of your just wisdom when it comes to babies. And especially as you go through school and you're working in the neonatal intensive care unit, because, you know, I, like I said, I don't specialize in babies. Like I like plain old, good, average, healthy babies. And when anything is not good and average, I want to send them to you. So we'll definitely have to have you back just to talk more about topics like this and any source or, you know, study or statistic that we used, we will definitely have all that linked in the show notes for you guys. That way, if there's anything that we said that you want to read more about or look more into, um, you definitely, we will definitely provide that link for you. So thank you for coming on the podcast and we'll definitely have to have you back in the future. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of What the Bump. Make sure you follow us over on Instagram at What the Bump Podcast. Leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and make sure you tune in every Monday at 9 a.m. There's a new episode. I really appreciate you for listening. Remember that this podcast is for educational purposes only and I hope you have a great day.